0: this week on the Backtable podcast.
1: I would just say, take a time to look and be very objective about the images and, and just don't let your ego get in the way. You know, if you that's how you end up missing things. So I'd say take the time to write a mapping, even when you have to select and interrogate a lot of answers. If you do it that way, it'll take you at most two hours.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com, very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Therosphere Y90 Glass Microspheres is the only FDA-approved Y90 treatment for HCC allowing personalized and flexible dosing. and efficient and powerful HCC therapy, Therosphere safely delivers predictable, targeted high-dose radiation with proven patient outcomes, preserving future treatment options while minimizing the side effects. Therosphere has over 20 years of success in HCC treatment and is backed by significant investments in clinical evidence with more than 100,000 patient treatments globally and has the support you need to efficiently treat. Calculate your dose with confidence using Simplicity Y90, personalized dosimetry software developed exclusively for Therosphere. Visualize prospective dose distribution and assess the absorbed dose delivered to give you optimal versatility and control. Durable outcomes, safe, reproducible results. Learn more at Therosphere.com. And now back to the show. This is part two of a two-part series. We're going to pick this conversation up that we began with Doctors Jimenez and Sandow. We're talking about Y90 and the HCC program at Oshner. So enjoy the podcast. All right. So the patients move through clinic and you guys have settled on intraarterial therapy. I'll leave it up to you guys how you want to split it. Like I'd like to talk about radiation segmentectomy, but also like what patients end up with like low bar treatment and how you choose between those two. Like is there a number cutoff, a volume cutoff. I mean, it's a big topic, but I'll kind of let you guys chew on it.
1: I'll take the rat seg when that's the easier one. I'm <laughs> joking. Yeah. You know, we were talking about the outline before we before we got to it. And, um, you know, we we got to the the bullet point that said lower treatment. And we both both look at each other and said, what is that? We, we typically don't do that. <laughs> we're not saying that there's not a place for it uh, or it's inappropriate. It's just that... You know, in our practice, we tend to select everything out and go after every little feeder for the tumor. Uh, so sometimes that's four or five different vials. It's a lot of cone beam CT. We not just looked at our data, but published data. We know that the, what's important is not the gray or the amount of radiation, but the amount of liver you're putting that radiation on. So if you put in That's when it comes to adverse events, I think
0: you're trying to say.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we try to keep our volume small. Uh, We select everything out, and um, that's our philosophy, and that's what's worked for us the best, you know. And sometimes, in order to be able to achieve that, yeah, we have to use a combination of ablation and Y90, uh, depending on size and location, all these other things. Tyler, what would you add? Well, I would say... We try to make everyone a rad seg candidate,
0: even if it's a multifocal disease that has tumors. And say you have four or five tumors, we will try. We we honestly will try to make you a rad seg candidate. And so we might not all do all the deliveries in one setting. We might split them up, do two on one one day, and maybe three on another day. But even if it's metastatic disease, we try to make everyone a rad seg patient. So we don't do a whole lot of low bar. One can do tons of fancy multi-compartment when it comes to larger volumes of liver that we treat. And he's he's way smarter than me when it comes to basically anything that's to do with Y90, but I like to keep it as simple as possible. I try to make everyone a uni-compartment RAD-SEG and it is it has worked well for me. All right, so this is actually
2: one of the really core principles that I kinda of wanted to get at. And I don't wanna like gloss over it and you just say, oh, okay, everyone we try and make into a rad sag. There are a lot of practices out there, advanced practices that are not like that. Can you kind of talk about how you got here? What are the challenges involved in like trying to get into all these feeders? How long a mappings take? You know, like just the nuts and bolts of actually like making this a reality.
0: Well, so we have something called the sphere conundrum, but you told me that you were going to cut me off if I talk about it for too long. And so I... <laughs>
2: I, I tried. I thought I took that out of the so, like. So I have like the the outline that I send you guys and the outline that I make for myself. I guess I left it in there. But that's well, like, no. So okay. I got the
0: sphere conundrum, and I can blast. I can I can dig deep down into a hole. It's, if you give me three minutes, five minutes, maybe I can probably
2: let's hear it. I'll let's do hear it. it.
0: Hey, do you want to do it now? I mean, we can. Yeah, let's do it. All right, perfect timing. Should we do this now, Juan, or is this a is there a better? I just time? doing
1: that. You touch base on that because it'll, it'll explain everything as far as our philosophy. I can take it on the back end and answer your question about length of mapping because it's not as long as you would think it is. Right. Okay. All right.
0: So Juan will go through our technique, and I think that's important. But let me. So I think we have to understand at the most granular level why why 90 works and so why 90 works because beta decay results in a release of high energy electrons and that essentially becomes microscopic bullets and that's what damages tumor dna now you damage tumor dna one of two ways you either create a double-stranded break if you get that that's the that's the head right that's going to kill them instantaneously alternatively you get a bunch of body hits right single-stranded dna hits well Some DNA can fix those. So you have to accumulate multiple single-stranded hits or multiple body hits to kill a tumor cell. Now, most people would agree that one cc of tumor contains about a billion tumor cells. So you need either a billion perfect hits or some higher multiple of that to kill a billion cells. Y90 is a game of statistics. So the goal is to get your activity up. And this is why Legacy was so successful if you compare it to everything else. So legacy showed that you had higher rates of CPN with doses greater than 400 gray. And that's different than what people used to think of when we were talking about 190 or 200 gray, right? What the difference with legacy was the activity was doubled, right? So you have more bullets are released essentially. So then it becomes a concept, or I guess now let's say, let's look at sphere activity and dose. So if we talk about a therosphere sphere, like a microsphere that was delivered at weak one Friday at noon. So I guess that's six days after calibration. That sphere mm-hmm. is 1175. The mean activity of that sphere is 1175 Becquerel. You compare that to a sphere that has much less energy like a 168 sphere, something that would be delivered on the very, very back end of a therosphere model. So week two Friday or a 168 sphere is a flex three. All right. So an 1175 Becquerel sphere will undergo approximately 330 million decays in one week. Now, a 168 Becquerel sphere will undergo 47 million decays in a week. That's a difference of a quarter of a billion decays, right? So it's a massive difference in the amount of bullets that are released. All right. We know space is limited. So if there's already a billion tumor cells in one ml of tissue, do I want to pack particles in there until there's enough space or do I want to make sure activity is in there to do what it needs to do? So it becomes a concept of the sphere conundrum, right? So if I had an 1175 Becquerel sphere and I need to get 400 gray, and you need about 7,000 spheres. If I had a 168 Becquerel sphere, and I need to get 400 gray, and you need about 50,000 spheres. So we looked at our results, and we looked at our SPEC CTs and our our post-treatment imaging, and we we could kind of figure out exactly how many spheres went into these tumors. And we rarely got over 20,000 spheres into tumor, even at the most smallest of volumes and highest of concentrations. So if we use 20,000 spheres as a cutoff, For what we would call difficult or undesired saturation, and you wanted to get 400 gray in to the tumor, you need a sphere that is about 412 becquerels worth of activity, and that's equivalent to about eight and a half days from calibration. So delivering on a week one Monday or week two Monday or early week two Tuesday. If you look at Bo's data where he actually looked at specific activity, he came to the exact same conclusion, right? That you need to be delivering high activity spheres to get higher rates of CPN, and he said. You shouldn't deliver more than eight days after calibration, which would be week two Monday. So for that reason, we treat almost all of our patients week one with week one vials because we know that that activity gets to the tumor the way we want it to. And I'll end it with this. And I think it sums it up nicely. You look at the studies that actually talk about durable outcomes or CPN, legacy, razor, dosisphere, target, the Mayo Clinic data. I like to call them BO1 and BO2 these all used high activity Therosphere doses. These guys, the majority of the people that publish these results are week one Therosphere users. And so if they're getting durable outcomes doing RAD, SEG like that, I think that's the way that we at Oshner have found that we can replicate what they do. And our outcomes have ironically replicated everything that they've done. All right, I think that was- Or non-ironically. Was that- Yeah, non-ironically, I guess. But was that- was it five minutes? Did I do That's it? Good. That, was right, time that was right on, that was right all on. right All right, you yeah. can cut me off. I don't need to talk anymore. I did all I needed to do.
1: I do want to say something, and I hope this makes it on the final version. Tyler said that I was smarter than him. There's no way I can come up with what he said. He was just doing that math and talking about millions and billions of numbers. I'm not that smart. I just letting you know, right now. I'm simple, simple guy. We'll make sure it gets in there, Juan. All right, can, Juan, can you kind of digest
2: some of that and talk about how the SEER conundrum ultimately leads to how you guys approach, I guess like the, the take-home is hotter spheres, week one dosing, and what you've already said is that you select out for individual feeders and, and so you're trying to do RADSEGs. But just talk, like expound on that a little bit.
1: So Tyler said high specific activity matters. We do believe that. The only way to do that is to treat as close to day of calibration, which is on a Sunday as you can. The problem with that is with increased specific activity, your dose goes up too. So, you know, then you have to make sure that you minimize adverse events. The only way to that you can minimize adverse events is by treating as small amount of liver as possible to take care of the tumor. Otherwise, you're going to end up with a lot of specific activity, a high dose in a big volume. That's what's been shown in all these studies, like Target, for example, and both Bo has some articles too, showing that it's about the size, the amount of normal liver that you treat that results in complications, not necessarily the dose. So when you put all of that together, then you're basically left out. It's like, we need activity, we need dose. We got to stay safe. The only way to achieve all those three is by getting as selective as you can. So then you have to go fish this all these little vessels out. You know, To a point as to, you got to do all these things. Your mapping has to take five hours. Uh, we boiled down our technique literally, and it's not ours. There's three papers that pretty much summarize everything that we do. And it's not my idea. So like I said, I'm not that smart, but I'm a great copycat. But uh, no, for real, so one of them is uh, Ron Gaba's paper, there's an ACR, and, uh Social Nuclear Medicine Consensus paper, and then there are the consensus guidelines for dosimetry that the most updated one are from 2022. Uh, so basically, those three papers together is what we use. Mapping is simple. If you just think what the purpose of the mapping is, then you can understand. What is it that you need to do to get it right? So basically, the purpose of a mapping is to identify all tumor feeders, vessels that are going outside the liver, any potential extrahepatic supply. So with that being said, literally ours is a protocol. Yeah, so you have to always restart by reviewing your imaging, try to identify any variant anatomy, then stick to it. Power runs, key. No matter how strong you are, you're not going to be able to inject five foot thirty. You can't do that. So power runs. Start with a celiac, uh, if needed, do an SMA, and then go from big to small, either common or proper hepatic. Do we do this for absolutely every treatment now? If you only have left-sided tumors, yeah, just go into the left. If it's only right, right. If you have somebody between, you know, segment four, segments five, eight, you have to interrogate both the left and the right because invariably you will have feeders from both, and then combing. Combine CT is the mainstay of our practice. So. And again, it's the same concept. Start big, so do a lower and then get smaller. Start getting selective and more selective until you make sure that you get what you need. You know, what people tend to say, you know, Y90 doesn't work or have a residual, wherever you deposit the radiation, it will kill that tissue, whether it's liver, stomach, heart, esophagus, it doesn't matter. But you, it goes in there, you're going to end up with a hole. So... Whenever you have some leftover is not, or like some residual it's not because the radiation didn't work, it's because you don't put radiation there. So that's why the concept of do a lower spin and then get smaller and make sure you have complete coverage is extremely important. I will tell you, you know, we use a lot of 2.0 French microcatheters for deliveries. A lot of times we will not select those arteries you're mapping because they can get spasm or they can get dissected and then you're not going to be able to treat, but you have to be able to identify knowing that that will in- introduce an unknown at the time of delivery, right? Because then you might have to spend a little bit of time, but then identify everything. Uh, you know, you may have by lower disease, take the time to do it and, and just follow that big to small approach, right? So if you're on the right low, start with the right, come in on the right. Anterior division, posterior division, five, eight, you know, six, seven, and combine all of those things and get smaller. And, and then I would just say, take a time to look and be very objective about the images and, and just not don't let your ego get in the way. You know, if you, that's how you end up missing things. So I would say, take the time to write a mapping, even when you have to select and interrogate a lot of vessels. If you do it that way, it'll take you at most two hours. Now, when a mapping takes four to five hours, and when you do the complete opposite, so when you say, oh, there's a lesion in segment two, I'm going to go to segment two, and then you don't see anything. So then you start backtracking and backtracking, and basically you end up higher radiation doses, more time, more spins, more more of everything. So start big and go small. Saves you time. Literally, everybody that comes to our practice, all our trainees, that's how we tell them how to do it. And if you ourselves included, deviate from that, we pay the price for it. Then just come up with a treatment plan. Do it all at once and then decide. If you know that, you know, you have to treat four or five vessels, sometimes, yeah, it'll be easy, that can take you about an hour, Uh, but if you're subselecting multiple tiny branches, two of French, very tortuous anatomy, divide it, just do two at a time. Don't get mentally exhausted and then give up, so just do two. Bring them back two weeks later, do the other two, and then just get your imaging. So, we've learned from our own mistakes. As I said our technique has evolved significantly since we first started doing this. And as of today, I can tell you that's what works best for us. And that's what has allowed us to, you know, replicate the results of, you know, some like Tyler likes to call them the 190 giants. And I agree with them of these guys. But it's just having you know, being very methodical and paying a lot of attention to detail.
2: So there's like a lot of questions that I wanted to dig in on that. But one of the things that strikes me is complete coverage of tumor. So if you're going and subselecting each vessel, like the way I kind of think about it, like when ablation is you want to hit the tumor, you also want to hit the margins
1: around the tumor. Is that a consideration? Like whenever you're treating? Yeah. You'll always have a, you'll always have a margin, right? It's, And like, I would say, ablation, uh, which you can get very, you know, just to a tumor and ablate that space if you want. If you think of, you know, vascular territories, there are always going to be like angiosomes, that's a term Bo likes to use, and triangular in shape, right? So you're always going to have a little bit of a margin. What we see the biggest issues is like you miss one of the part of the tumor. And so I'm not talking about like a centimeter, it's a couple of millimeters. And that's where the lower cone beam is so important because on that lower cone beam, it has multiple things. So you can see the entire enhancement pattern of that tumor. So if you get too selective and you miss something, also, if you do a right lower and you don't see complete enhancement, you know that you may have to go to the left or you have a phrenic or something else going in that you have to look up, that you have to look for. So that's where the issue comes. So you're always going to get a margin, no matter how selective you are, at least that's been our experience because there's always a little of your normal tissue. But the most important thing is, the more selective you get, you may just stop isolating other branches that may supply that you may miss. And I can tell you, it's very easy to do if you just go straight to a vessel and you see a nice round enhancement area, like, oh, I got it on. And then you go look back and I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I missed this little edge. I see.
2: And you also talked about the MAA delivery. Sometimes where exactly do you put the MAA if you're not always gonna I guess like I've always thought about like putting the MAA exactly to like mimic the actual treatment dose.
1: We've used to do that. You hear people tell you that sometimes if you do it too selectively, you can occlude that vessel. It's happened to us a couple of times. To me, one or two times is more than enough to wanna to change my practice because you can't treat that patient. Uh, so we tend to do the majority of our MAAs uh, lower. And uh, in that way, you just get a good understanding of everything and uh, you avoid any potential occlusion. Well, so the caveat I would add to that where we talk about MAA is, M1
0: does this much better than anyone, but whenever it comes to multi-compartment, when we do a multi-compartment or partition dosimetry, I think we'll, if we're going to treat a larger volume, that's where we care if that MAA is actually delivered close. Because sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes MAA will behave like you would expect the particle to behave. And if it does, you have a, a great way to kind of anticipate how your dose will be delivered. So when we're planning to do multi-compartment, which again is a rare part of our practice, or at least mine, if we plan to do multi-compartment, we care where the MAA gets. Slipper. We might de- deliver it in a division or in a, a large portion of a segment. But otherwise, if it's just going to be a unilobar segment or a compartment segmentectomy, it's going to be a a low bar delivery or low bar MAA.
2: Do you guys use any of the software, the uh, software that like Onco Suite,
0: that helps you select the feeders or? To select feeders? No, we, so we, we have navigation software with Siemens, like or We don't use it routinely. I will say to plug one on this cone beam CT thing, he's a big advocate for low bar cone beam. And then he will, what he does, and I think we all should do, he, He goes back after his mappings and will confirm that he completely covered the tumor in the same way with all of his segmental or subsegmental cone beams. He will confirm that he had complete coverage of the tumor and he actually overlays them to make sure that he had everything laid out well. I think that's the only way to make sure that you covered it and you aren't going to be surprised about any bad responses or suboptimal responses. We do use dosimetry software though.
2: Well, hold on. Before we get to the dosimetry software, which I do want to talk about, I wanted to talk about uh, how you guys calculate your volumes. Are the volumes of tumor treated are based off, do you use it off the old cross-sectional or can you just calculate it off the comb beam?
1: We love to use cone beam. Yeah, cone beam. Comb beam. <laughs> Everything straight from comb beam.
2: All right, so now I do want to talk about dosimetry. You guys have some software that you like that's been helpful or kind of been an unlock to how you
0: treat these guys? We do. Yeah, we're biased. A little only, it was forced on me. I should say that dosimetry software was forced. I wasn't always this way, but I, I have come to be a believer. Before, we used to use the TWI Excel spreadsheet that a lot of people use for for Therosphere, and it, it worked well for us. We had no issues. I actually I absolutely hated the way we had to draw volumes. We had a, um, gosh, what was the name of the, it was a vital product that we had to use. Vitria. Vitria. Yeah, we had to use Vitria to map out our cone beam volumes. And it took forever. It was probably one of the most challenging products to use. And then we switched over to MEM, And MEM is okay. I don't love it. I don't hate it, but it's just okay. And Murata... Had had kind of I think Juan has been working with them for quite some time, and we had a we had a lot of case volume, and Juan had a lot of interest in dosimetry, and so he's been kind of working to refine simplicity for quite some time. So he actually pushed me to start using it, and I will say that it yeah I didn't really like switching from my what I'm used to with the Excel spreadsheet, which is working fine, but I I do believe in the simplicity, it will it has allowed us to up our game when it comes to multi-compartment, when it comes to looking at post-treatment spec and making sure you can do voxel-based dosimetry so we know what our D70 looks like, the dose to 70% of the tumor, or D99. A lot of the stuff that we've been able to do with simplicity has been great. So it's, it's made ordering smoother. And I think I, I should also plug one two one too. Juan is actually setting up a course. He's got a simplicity course coming up. I, think I saw sold it on
1: the SIR for Did forum. you see it? Yeah. It. You're making me blush, Tyler. I know,
0: man. Juan is going places. I don't know if you realize this, but you better get on board now. Juan is Juan is there, man. Yeah.
2: I feel like a rocket ship is like in the room. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> because of Tyler. No, Yeah.
2: All right. So Simplicity, Um, that's the, the Boston side product? Yes. Like the, the software? When did you guys start using it? What do you like about so it? So we
1: started using around COVID. So to Tyler's point, you know, we had been working with Boston and they had this new product. They, I think Boston understood that the whole ordering process was a, and the the symmetry process was cumbersome. Uh, nobody was really doing it. Even MIM didn't have a dedicated software for Y90 at that point. So we had a lot of headaches. We were switching packs and with the switch of the packs, our volume software went away. So we, we needed to do it and, um. So we brought it in, it is, you know, like its name implies, it's simple to use. Uh, But at the same time, it allows you to get as granular as you want. So you can, to Tyler's point, draw all your tumors, look at the, you know, how much radiation went to each of them uh, and get as granular as you want. But it's something that, you know, we have some, some of the guys in our group have difficulty using computers and some are very advanced. And this catered to pretty much everybody, right? Yeah, I could just show and then they can just do it themselves. So it was very, it was very easy. It allowed everybody to keep their ordering in track in, you know, on time, because otherwise people would just procrastinate. It helps us keep a huge database of all our patients. They're all safe. So we can go and literally open any of them. It's been key to look at our outcomes and research and a lot of the things that we've been doing with what Tyler has been doing, I should say, I just write his coattails when it comes to all all of the research stuff. But yeah, it's simple. Uh, We have four or five vial cases routinely. I would say if we get uh, one patient with one vial, that's like unheard of. So, you know, when you're ordering multiple vials to be able to understand how much you're gonna send to the lungs, how much you're putting into the liver, the percentage of the liver that you're treating, uh, that makes it very simple. And to Tyler's point, MIM works, it's just that I don't, there's this thing about meme that they like to make it a little bit complex and it's unintuitive in my opinion. I, I was not able to figure it out. So, and now all the nuclear medicine guys love MIM, so uh, more power to them. So,
2: what do you guys use Simplicity for as far as, Tyler, you mentioned you guys do specs on the back end after treatments to look at dose and and where it's gone?
0: Yeah, we, so we use, we do specs after map, spec CT after mapping and after delivery. That's the one protocol. And he has made sure that at where we do Y90, we do spec CT. And I think that's a good thing to do. Not everybody has access to spec CT, but we do, and we're going to make sure that we do it that way. So we, if we're going to do multi-compartment, we'll use the mapping spec CT. If it can help give us kind of an idea about dose to tumor, dose to normal, and we can tailor our dose that way. And then we'll also use simplicity, the actual dosimetry aspect of simplicity to track what the dose to tumor was and actually look at, and you can take even more granular, right? Do voxel-based dosimetry. You can, they call it D70 or D50 or D99. You can see what the dose to 70% of the tumor or 90% of the tumor or um, what your dose to normal was. And, and we'll use that. And that information is kind of that Detailed information has allowed us to figure out how spheres were deposited in tumors, right? Because if we know what the dose was in those areas based on the spec CT, we know how many spheres went there if we know when we delivered the spheres. So we, we've been able to figure out t- sphere concentrations in normal tissue and tumor tissue and kind of optimize how we choose what day to deliver particles.
2: So we've kind of talked about it in a roundabout way, as far as you guys try and get selective as possible, high dose, dose matters, like as far as like hitting 400 gray, can you get a little bit more specific about when you're ordering your dose? So you already know the volume that you're going to be treating, you want to minimize or keep the volumes as low as possible. But when you're dosing these patients, you care necessarily if it's 500 gray, 600 gray, or you just try and pick a vial that is going to be above 400.
1: Dead is dead. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I would say our baseline is 400s. There's a little bit of caveats to that, but, you know, we've gone as high as over 1,000 gray to perfuse volumes and tumors. Granted, small volumes, right? You know, putting 1,000 gray in like a three to 400 cc volume, that's dangerous. So small volumes, yeah. And then I guess the biggest caveat that we notice that we, you know, we try to be careful is close to a porta hepatis and that common bile duct because you may get some issues with the bile duct and then you end up with strictures and they need biliary drain. So I would say close to the hilum, be a little bit careful, but if you're peripheral, right then next next to the gallbladder, that matter. Tyler has a case like he shows all the time, 1200 gray segment five, that, right then next to the gallbladder, nothing happened to it. Within then next to the colon, next to the stomach. And um, we have not seen any complications from the procedure itself. It's not an issue for transplant, according to our transplant surgeon. We have been told sometimes if they, if you're going to go to resection, not necessarily transplant, there may be some adhesions that may make the operation a little bit more complex, but yeah, we'll just say 400. And then we do follow the, the dosing recommendations from the consensus guidelines, so if you look through all of those. And most of this comes from a dosis here that will tell you that you need to put at least 205 to two more, preferably 250 to 300. So we try to follow that as our, I guess, lower end of radiation. So if we cannot get that much into two more, then we might have to switch to a different modality. But using 200 even close to that a hepatitis uh, region has been safe for us.
2: Okay. So does this mean everyone is week one, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday treatment? Or virtually? Just
0: about. Now, we will occasionally, uh, you know, so if you're treating really, really small volumes, like let's say if you're only treating 25 mLs worth of volume and you put in a, the smallest file size you can get is a 3GPQ and you're going to put that in 25 mLs worth of tissue, that's going to be close to, I mean, I'm trying to think, spitball, I think it's 1200 gray. And now talking to people and I, You never know who will be you're talking to about this. 1,200 gray can make people nervous, right? Because they just associate gray with like, oh, that's too hot. I'm going to like cook my hands on it or something. Granted, dead is dead, right? If it was going to be dead at 400, it's going to be dead at 1,200. Really, dead is dead. And so that I like to come back to that whenever we're talking about radiation delivery. But occasionally, rarely we'll deviate into like a a week to Monday, especially if it's a small volume and we want to keep our radiation, like in the Port Hepatitis region, we want to keep our our actual gray low, like in the 250, 200 range. So we'll deviate a little bit, but I would say again, 90 to 95% of our deliveries are in that week one, Wednesday to Friday range. So
2: there's another scenario that I wanted to, to get at. Some of what we talked about is like the tumors that you can just dunk all over, like the ones where you can get like an achieve like a 25 ml volume but what about if like, you have like a centrally located, maybe away from the porta uh, hepatis, but big tumor, centrally located, multiple feeders. How do you tackle it?
0: We are cone beam crazy. And this is, our team expects us to do cone beams. And we go in there the anticipation to get, we will cover every possible feeder. And I think there's multiple ways to do this. And I don't disagree with the philosophies. Our practice, we want to make it subsegmentectomy. Because we know that if we can maximize dose to tumor and limit dose to normal, we have a better opportunity to come back on the back end, right? If we don't perfuse the whole liver with dose, even though the majority of it might get sucked up into tumor, we have an opportunity. In an eight, nine centimeter tumor, we might be coming back to retreat them. I think another school of thought is to do a larger volume, knowing that the tumor is going to soak up the majority of the tumor. You can either do a partition or multi-compartment dosimetry for it or you just do a low bar dose, maybe a 200, 150. Great. Knowing the tumor is going to take a dramatic more amount of those spheres and you, but you're probably going to be coming back. And so I, I think both ways hold merit, but our practice is we will select every feeder. If it's seven feeders, we'll do it. And that's the detail that I think we like to to push for because we're competing with surge for cases, right? Like, you know, and I shouldn't say we compete. We we share cases and we do what's best for patients. But in the real world, Surgeon, they're going to take the time to dissect out and, and make sure that they carve a margin on a tumor. And it, those cases might take some time. So I feel like if we're trying to produce the same results as our colleagues and other specialties, we owe it to the patients to spend that much time trying to select this stuff out.
2: So how about tough locations? Like we talked about centrally located tumors, but what about tumors that are... Well, wherever they are, they end up like, like having some extra hepatic feeders. How do you guys deal with that?
1: So we map them out and then it goes back to the same. You got to understand what you're dealing with. Have we done extra hepatic? Yes, we've done a couple of phrenics, you know, adrenals, even gastric branches, GDA branches. I think Tyler's done splenic branches. The key thing there is just to make sure that you can control where the radiation is going to go so the liver is slow. That might be one of the instances if we're doing extra hepatic that we may put the MAA there just to be a hundred percent sure that we don't have any, any distribution that we may not be able to account for. And then we infuse a little bit slower and we dose a little bit lower. I would just tell you with anything that may be going to a bowel, the number one thing is just to make sure that you're not going to get anything in the bowel. And you can go, you can still go pretty high. You know, with some of the other things that may be going to skin and diaphragm, particularly skin, you have to be careful because you may cause radiation burns and they may end up getting wounds and things like that. I think there's been case reports of people inadvertently uh, putting Y90 into a falciform artery and they end up with like skin burns. So toning it down, making sure that you understand where everything is going to go and try to get selective. You'll see even with some of these phrenic branches that sometimes it will be one dominant one that'll just go to tumor. So get into that. And I would say treat everything that it's fed by the liver first, just because that's going to be safe and and sometimes you'll get a little bit of an expected result from that extra hepatic. Fortunately, you'll see that some of that will respond to treatment and can really explain why, wow, but I've had that happen. So always treat the liver first and then just take the time to analyze. If you're going to hurt skin, taste, maybe you can ablate that component. So be open to other things. But um, but yeah, you can do it. It, it. It's just you have to pay attention. I would say don't go trying to do that on your first case or your first 10, 20 cases. Just maybe give yourself a little bit of time to get comfortable with everything.
2: Get your chutzpah. Sure. So... How many vessels do you guys, or is coiling a, bar, a part of your practice for the mapping part of the procedure if you're trying to redistribute flow or just exclude like branches that you're not sure if you're going to get reflux into?
1: I would say for reflux purposes, no. we If we have to, we'll just get more distance, split doses. Now, redistribution is a concept that I understand. I think it works great for some people. I have not been successful in making it work. The way I want it at, or reproducible every time. So I don't use it. I don't do it for that.
0: Okay. Tyler? Well, I, I have a technique called the sando spasm. Sometimes it happens in the tumor vessel. Sometimes it happens in the normal vessel. And what I try to do is I always try to, if I want to redistribute flow, I try to spasm the normal vessel. What I've, it, it works sometimes, it doesn't work other times. And sometimes what'll happen is I'll, I'll spend a couple minutes trying to spasm a normal vessel and gently select the tumor vessel, and the tumor vessel shuts down on me, and the normal vessel looks beautiful. that so we'll play with that. But in I, I same kind of concept as one. I'll occasionally coil. you know if it's a falciform artery or something and it's huge, I'll coil. but i I really love putting ice packs around people's belly button. you know that that's that's my thing,
2: okay, fair enough. Let's see. Is there anything that I didn't cover in terms of y'all's mapping? Treatment, dosimetry. I mean, we talked a little bit about unicompartment and multi-compartment. I feel like you'll reference multi-compartment a couple of times, but I think you said earlier that 95% of the time you're doing unicompartment.
1: Yeah, it's just because we're doing multiple semitectomies. It's easiest to avoid. The biggest thing with multi-compartment dosimetry is that you need very good distribution of your MAA. So, if for whatever reason, it clumped or something happened and it's clutchy and, you know, and it doesn't correlate with tumors, you can't use it. So we just say if we have somebody that has like those BCLC Bs with multiple tumors everywhere, and then you're looking at doing a low or a pretty large minor liver, and you know you may have to come back, then yeah, definitely do a multi-compartment. And rather than dosing into tumor, dose into normal parenchyma to stay safe, then that that's when we would use it. But uh, the majority of our cases truly are, you know, tend to be either advanced or bigger tumors. Uh, we get segmentectomy, so. Everything is just teasing out as much as we can and um, delivering into a smaller volume.
2: Okay. Speaking of like tough scenarios, as far as underlying liver disease, do you guys have a cutoff for how much volume you want to preserve depending on their child's pew, A, B, and C, or each patient's individual and you just have to case-by-case basis?
0: I think we look at it on a case by case basis and a situational basis. I think if we know that we always have transplant as a background option for the patient, we feel more comfortable being aggressive because we know that should we run into problems there, we do have an option for liver failure. Should it, should we progress? One, I should say he, he pushes this on everybody, but we look at Billy Rubin and a trend in bilirubin more so than we look at a number. And we use direct bilirubin too, right? So if someone comes in, and it's not just about their child pew class, but we we pay more attention to albumin and bilirubin independently, one as an anticipation for outcomes and one as an anticipation for adverse events. So bilirubin is our key metric for adverse events. If they come in with the bilirubin that is 1.5, most people would say if it's a small segmentectomy, we're going to do fine. But if the bilirubin was 0.5 three weeks ago, we might pay a little bit more close attention to that or closer attention to that because they're kind of in a trend of uh, liver decompensation and we don't want to be the kick into a full-on liver failure. So we look at trends. I should say, you know, we we follow the data. Boas published a great paper talking about in patients with compensated liver function, you can you don't really have to pay attention to volume. In patients with with some underlying liver dysfunction, you know, 2s, child pubes, you need to be treating less than 15% of the total liver. And that's that's kind of where we are. So we, we try to keep the total volume of liver that we treat with segmentectomies in just about anyone, normal, normal, abnormal, less than 20% for anyone. If it's going to be a segmentectomy dose and we'll split, if it's going to be more than 20%, we'll split doses. We'll bring them back and maybe treat another, Give maybe get 15, 20% and then bring them back and treat a little bit more. Make sure that the liver is holding steady.
2: How far do you wait between
0: treatments? Three to four weeks, two, three, four weeks. And we'll track a bil- We'll get a bilirubin at whatever that midpoint is because that's another, another metric in time. And then we get a bilirubin on the day of treatment. And as long as those are holding steady, then we know we're pretty good. But obviously in patients with liver dysfunction, we're treating, we don't want to treat more than 15% and we'll try to treat even less than that. And that's the, again, our, why subsegmentectomies have really worked for us because our treatment volumes are so small compared to the total liver volume that we can get away with a lot.
1: Okay.
2: So switching gears, like left turn a little bit, research you guys are doing, are y'all publishing any of this? Is this, you know.
1: That's all Tyler.
0: Oshner Ashner secrets. Like. Yeah, we. We like to keep it, we hold our cards close. Um, no, it's, I have zero academic time. And so basically, if anyone from Oshner administration hears this, maybe they'll give me some. No, I. the, um, I, we work with some of the most brilliant research. We have a research team that works with Transplant and has agreed to partner with us. And so Paul Thievenot, Kelly Nunes, they have kind of built-in protocols and algorithms for tracking these patients. And that has gained the interest of a lot of companies, even outside of the local regional spectrum, but just in the HCC spectrum as a whole. One of the coolest things that, and we're in the process of publishing a lot of this stuff, in the last several years, we put out about three or four or five papers a year with our group. The coolest stuff that we have coming down the pipeline is we're looking at tumor markers and tumor markers that aren't readily available in the U.S. They are available in China and they've been used for a while, but they're not really pushed in the U.S. What we've identified is there's there's three tumor markers, one of them being AFP, but the other two are not routinely ordered. And what we found is that if you have multiple biomarkers that are positive, your tumor tends to behave incredibly aggressive. If you have biomarkers that are negative, you basically could flick the tumor and it's gonna die. But if you have three that are positive, you gotta throw the kitchen sink at it. And even if you throw the kitchen sink at it, you rarely get on top of it and get control. And so we have Kaplan-Meier curves kind of showing how that lays out. And I have never seen Kaplan-Meier curves look as as beautiful as this. I mean, like it literally follows how you- It's a nice Kaplan-Meier curve. Yeah, it, I was like shocked. So tumor markers is a big thing. Another thing that we're looking at, and that we mentioned earlier, how we kind of deviate off the BCLC spectrum is albumin. And we use albumin as a marker for tumor response. We can get on the nitty gritty, but albumin is kind of a marker of nutrition. Nutrition is a marker of immune function. And all those key concepts tie into to tumor response, right? If you have good immune function, the body can help compensate and take some of that tumor down. So we looked at, we've looked at maybe 500 patients and ideal patients, if you stack apples to apples or even apples to oranges, what we found is that there was an unusual situation with our ablation patients. And so our ablation patients, when they had low albumin, so an albumin 3.4 or less, they tended to have higher rates of recurrence at one year and at two years compared to any other modality, intraarterial, taste or Y90. And so we kind of did a deep dive on it. We're like, oh, so the first question you would ask is maybe VJ left and you guys just became bad ablationists, right? Like that, that would be the first thing you would say, right? He gets involved in this data too, but ironically, if you have an albumin greater than 3.4, you almost have no progression after after ablation. But with our Y90 population, we have almost no progression at two years or any intraarterial therapy, no progression. And so we are, we're going to study that a little closer now, but- for patients that would otherwise be candidates for ablation, if you have an albumin less than 3.4, we're actually choosing to treat those patients with Y90 because of the results that we've seen over the last several years with, with the ablation patients.
2: Very nice. Is there anything like I didn't bring up like, and I, that I glossed over as far as like the, the Oshner way for treating HCC that was kind of a gaff? Like, is there anything that
0: we need to go back and cover? I think there's, you know, we could talk about combination. Combination therapies? Our oncologist, in combination with systemic too, I think. Um, oh, okay. If we can partner up, two heads are better than one. So we try to, especially for those infiltrative tumors or those huge eight centimeter, nine centimeter tumors, tumors that might not make it to transplant are certainly gonna sit on the, the wait list for a long time. We try to get oncology involved readily. And we actually refer patients to oncology just as they would refer patients to us. It's a shared partnership in outcomes. And I find that if we combine our treatments, we tend to have incredible results.
2: Are the oncologists asking for biopsies or they'll still treat Lyrad 4 or 5?
0: No, our, our oncologists, if it meets imaging criteria for HCC and the AFPs elevate, or even if the AFPs elevated or not, but if it meets imaging criteria for HCC, they are comfortable going for systemic immunotherapy too. I shouldn't just say systemic, it's immunotherapy.
2: Okay. Yeah. So actually, that was my next question: Are they actually getting like serafinib or is it mostly they're getting immunotherapy?
0: So it's immunotherapy. We will either do the Stride regimen or a And it, you know, if we're going to treat with Y90, we're going to hold the bev, the Avastin, or if it's Stride, we'll we'll try to go go. But we tend to do we'll map and treat while they're on immuno. Anecdotally, I think we tend to see immunotherapy responses after the second cycle, so within one month of starting immunotherapy, because they're biweekly. So by the, by two cycles, you should, you probably will see what immunotherapy is going to do. But, uh, Y90 has either been used to clean up what residual we see with immuno, or we'll, we'll hit it first and let immuno kind of be there to sit and hold it. So get a great response and
1: no progression.
2: Very cool. Juan, anything else that I didn't talk about?
1: No, I think you did a pretty good job, covered pretty much everything. I'm glad Tyler brought up that uh, systemic combo aspect of our practice because it's grown a lot over the last couple of years. And the one thing I want to let people know is like, typically you think of your multidisciplinary conferences, we don't think about them this way, but you may think that the more players you have, the less chance of getting referrals and things like that. Ultimately, what we realize is the more people that you have on all your multidisciplinary conferences, you capture and they're capturing more patients and Otherwise you're going to get patients that you may not have the best option for, but because you didn't have maybe an oncologist or a surgical oncologist or a transplant surgeon, as far as your team, you may not be able to refer to them. It has allowed us literally to all work together and, you know, sometimes they'll get resection and we come back and do lobectomies or we'll do you know, embolization. Same thing to Tyler's point, working with oncology at the same time or coming after them or then coming after us. As patients progress sometimes, it's been extremely helpful. And our results as a team have gotten better. That's good.
2: Anything you guys are excited about as far as like things that are coming down the pipeline or things that are you all doing with your practice, whether it's HCC or or something else that you want to talk about? Final thoughts.
1: You didn't put that one on the outline. Now I got to think about it. (laughs) No, I didn't, man. It's got to be some kind
2: of spontaneity. Um,
0: I I think we're starting to see... we're starting to see segmentectomy play a role as an ablative modality for metastatic disease. And I think we always used to think of Y90 as a low bar only treatment for metastatic disease, right? Whether it be trying to control multifocal or microscopic disease that you couldn't see. And I, at least what I'm seeing is that the paradigm seems to be shifting. There seems to be more of a push for us surgeons, anyone to be more aggressive in controlling tumor burden especially inside the liver. So we're using the segmentectomy, the segmentectomy game to our advantage. We'll do multiple subsegmentectomies for multiple metastatic tumors, kind of applying the same concept among the sphere conundrum thing to our practice. And I think that's going to be, I think we're going to start to see Y90 reemerge as a treatment for metastatic disease. But it's going to be Y90 as a ablative modality, similar to what you see with microwave ablation or RFA when it comes to treating metastatic tumors.
1: I'm a little bit more of a geek, so I'm more into technology and things like that. And, uh, you know, what I would like to see or I'm, I'm excited about is how augmented reality, AR are going to play an, uh, like a role, not not after the fact or before the fact, but as you're like mapping this patient, you know, all the opportunities. And I just look at Apple's new, I guess, headset, the Vision Pro. I think of all of the things you can do with that while you are in the suite and all the processing power and analyzing all these images, it can be, it can help not just us out, but it can also help level out the field amongst people that may not necessarily do as many of us, like if you have something kind of guiding you as you go through, helping you understand the images as you acquire them, I think that could be huge. That's uh, I would just say that that's what I would like to see. That's what I'm getting excited about.
2: Have you guys been seeing anything or talking to anyone who's doing Y90 for organs outside of the liver? Is that in the horizon for you guys by any chance?
1: Yes, not necessarily for Tyler or I, but as you know, they have a trial going on for GBM or one of our partners, Paul Glada with us, mainly neuro-IR, is getting involved with that. And I think some of the preliminary results for that have been very promising. And I think that would be great. I know there's another trial looking at a prostate, but I'm not very familiar with that. And there could be other applications, right? I think this is what we should borrow. You know, a lot of times people see what we're doing and they try to like apply their techniques to what we do. This is what we should, like mainly radiation oncology. We should do the same, right? Everything that they radiate, we should be able to go after. And I think if you look at it that way, soft tissue sarcomas, a uh, bunch of other things. You know, lung, I think that's an interesting lung. But I think we we should be applying it the same way.
2: Is Paul Galata like the nicest guy? Every time I talk to him. Oh,
1: 100 percent.
2: Super nice too. Like
0: he yeah. he, he doesn't have a like bad like bone in his body. Charade. He's got he's got some God, of the worst nice jokes dude. that you would ever hear. But not a bad bone. I disagree.
1: Fun. I like his jokes. Not a bad bone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just no funny bone. All right. To our audience, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the show notes. We're going to try and include links to the articles that we referenced. Those are going to be found at www.backtable.com. And a big thank you to the people on the Backtable team, the medical students who make those show notes a reality. It's certainly not me. So we appreciate the good work. I think that's where you can find some links to free CME. Last thing, new show, Back Table MSK with Jacob Fleming. If you like the intro music, please let Jacob know. It's all original, written, and composed by the good Dr. Fleming. For those others, or for everyone else interested in supporting the show, like, subscribe, and share the podcast on social media. Or if you're an old person, just tell somebody about it. Good old fashioned word of mouth is very helpful as we continue to build this community that wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message to us at at underscore backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced
2: and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck,
0: Sabine Dong, Michael Barraza,
2: and Ali Behetti.
0: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter. Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer.
2: Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz.
0: Social media and PR by Ann Dang, Manisha Naganathanahali,
2: and Manbir Singh Subli.
0: Administrative support provided by Jim Lloyd Kinabrew.
2: Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana.
1: Thanks again for listening.